Revelation 2, we're going to be studying the church in Ephesus together this morning. Hopefully you can find it in your Bibles. The date is April 14th, 1912. The location, a few hundred miles off the coast of Canada in the North Atlantic Sea, here at 9.40 p.m., one of the most infa- or infamous messages in modern history is said to have been received and then consummarily ignored. There's much debate among historians as to the reason that the message didn't receive much attention. Was it human error? And if so, whose fault was it? Who was to blame? Was it simply pride, thinking that the warning posed no threat to them? Regardless of the verdict to that question, No one will debate that the catastrophic loss of life would result from that decision. What was this critically and disregarded message? The message simply and ceremoniously read. Ice report in latitude 42 north to 41.25 north. Long 49 west to long 50.3 west. Saw much heavy pack ice and great number large icebergs, also field ice. Weather good, clear. As you may have guessed, this is the wireless message sent from the Masaba to the crew of the Titanic the night before their fateful collision with the iceberg and sinking the following day. And one has to wonder what may have been the result if the crew had heeded the warning. How many lives would have been saved and how may history have been altered if the Titanic's crew had responded correctly to this message. Last week, introducing our sermon series in Revelation entitled Dear Church, Tom appropriately said, Faith Bible Church and every other church is only one generation away from extinction. Much like the Titanic, no church anticipates this will be its fate, but Christ's letter to his bride in this first church, Ephesus, carries that kind of gravity. Heeding the warning is a matter of survival, and we in every other church would do well not to ignore Christ's letter to his church this morning. Let's pray before we dive into this passage. Father, we simply just praise you this morning for the fact that we are conquerors through the work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, that the whole book of Revelation reminds us that Christ has conquered and will ultimately one day come again. Lord, we just praise you for that. We're humbled by that. We recognize that we can do nothing in our own power and we're entirely dependent upon Christ. We do ask this morning that that would be true as well, that your spirit and your word would do what only they can do, that you would use it in the lives of your body to accomplish your purposes for the sake of your name and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So we've already read the passage, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. But let me take a moment, and I want to back up here a little bit in case you missed Tom's introduction message last week on these seven churches and on on the book of Revelation. He mentioned two things that I want to make sure we keep in mind before we move into this first church. The first is we have to keep in mind that Revelation is a letter written from Christ, the bridegroom, to his bride, the church. This is the imagery that continually plays itself out in the book of Revelation. Secondarily, in his messages to these seven real churches in Asia Minor, 
minor, he lists compliments, concerns, corrections, and his commitment to them. And the church in Ephesus is no exception to that rule. In this first letter Christ gives to his church, it's a message of encouragement, and it's also a message of dire warning. If you're a note taker, let me give you my outline, and this will be the outline for the other churches, because these letters are written much like letters are today. We get a bit of an introduction in verse 1 in what I'm calling the address. What is on the outside of an envelope? Who is it to? Who is it from? We'll see that in verse 1. Secondarily, we see the aim of the letter in verses 2 through 6. What is the point of the letter? What is Jesus writing to his church? What does he want them to understand? And then lastly, in verse 7, we'll see the letter's assurance. Christ makes a promise to this church that we would do well to listen to as well. So let's start. Who is this letter to? Who is this letter from? Let's look at the envelope. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Do you pick up on who it's from and who it's to? It's from Jesus, the bridegroom, to specifically the church in Ephesus. But what do we know about Ephesus? If you weren't with us two years ago, Tom took us through the book of Ephesus and ta- or Ephesians and talked a tremendous amount about this city. Let me give you some of the cliff notes, the high points of what we know about Ephesus. It was an incredibly important city in this region, though it was not the capital of the area. It was a center for commerce and trade because it found itself on a key port just down a river. It also hosted some of the most famous games in this part of the world that would have been close to the Olympics that would have been hosted in Athens. However, the city's economy revolved around the central worship of the goddess Artemis, or Diana, and the temple that was located in Ephesus. Ephesus was an affluent city. It was a superstitious city. It was an idolatrous city. And it was an exceptionally sensual city. Most of what would have passed for worship of the fertility goddess Diana would have been sexual expression in the prostitutes that were there at the temple 24-7. If anything, the city of Ephesians reminds us of Vanity Fair from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read the book, I'd encourage you to do so at some point. In there, Christian and his companion Faithful find themselves in this city called Vanity Fair, And it's full of things to look at, and it's full of excitement, and it's full of things, people buying and trading, and they're exploring the wealth and the opportunities in the city. However, the city turns on a dime against Christian and faithful when Christian and faithful refuse to buy into their worldview. Ultimately, faithful is killed in Vanity Fair. And this reminds us a tremendous amount about Ephesus. This city that had adopted and loved everything the world values and pursues. It's also a city of between a quarter million and half a million people. It should strike us as a bit familiar to our own context here in Lincoln. But what do we know about the Ephesian church? What was the church that was operating in this pagan city? Tradition would tell us it was probably founded by Priscilla and Aquila. One of the main teachers we learn in Acts 18 that would have taught early in the church in Ephesus was Apollos, the powerful preacher and speaker of God's word. 
We also learn in Acts 19 and 20 that the Apostle Paul visited Ephesian church for over two years where he ministered and preached the word there. We get the entire book of Ephesians in the New Testament where Paul calls the Ephesian church to love and unity, as David just read. And then in 1 Timothy, we learn that Timothy as well ministered in the church in Ephesus as one is encouraged to be faithful there by the Apostle Paul. Lastly, again, tradition would tell us this is probably where the Apostle John finished up his ministry. This is a church that's in a difficult context, in a hard city to be a Christian, but with a storied legacy of strong Bible teaching and preaching. Most churches would be jealous to say they had preachers the caliber of Paul and Apollos and the Apostle John and Timothy filling their pulpits most weeks. And it would seem that this church took on certain traits from each of those men, but we'll talk about that here in a moment. This was the context that this letter is written into. We must understand what this church was facing and who they were to understand Christ's words to them. But before giving them his correction, his encouragement, his challenge, he takes the time to say who this letter is from. We're not going to go through all the descriptions of Jesus that Tom talked about from chapter 1. He gives the church at Ephesus a very specific description. To the church of the angel in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. should sound familiar as a lot of this imagery came up earlier in chapter 1. Christ describes himself in two ways to the church at Ephesus. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let's focus on the first. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. This idea of holding is actually not the same term used earlier in verse 16 when we read, in his right hand he held seven stars. This is a far more aggressive word. It literally means to hold the whole, almost to embrace. It kind of reminds me of the song, you know, he's got the whole world in his hand. Everybody knows that? We tend to think we're we're like we grab hold of something, manipulate or use it as a tool. What he's talking about here is to, to, to embrace, to hold the seven stars. It reminds me of John 10, 27 and 28, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. To the church at Ephesus, in a very difficult place, Jesus says, I'm holding the church. But what are these seven stars? What are these seven stars that we read in verse 1? Back in chapter 1, verse 20, we get a little bit of an insight into this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in your right hand, or in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, angels literally here means messengers, and there's three potential interpretations for this commentators are divided on this idea. The first is maybe it's some sort of human representative, a pastor, elder, a leader in the church. And that would make sense because the letters are addressed to these individuals. However, nowhere else in Revelation's 60-plus use of this term does it speak to a human person. Secondarily, maybe there's some sort of angelic representatives, a messenger sent to the church. It would kind of make sense, except that the letters are written to those individuals, which seems a little strange. 
And lastly, there are some that believe it's the, the prevailing spirit or the culture of the church. It's a representative that defines who the church is, essentially. And I tend to think this is the best interpretation of this. So he's speaking to the churches. He's saying, I hold you, and I love this, he holds them in his right hand. Now, if you know me very well, you know that I'm a lefty. So I always struggle whenever I find this holds in the right hand terminology in Scripture, okay? I prefer the left hand, to be perfectly honest. But this is Scripture, so we're going we're gonna, to, you know. This idea of holding in the right hand is consistent throughout Scripture. It speaks to the hand of strength, the hand of power, the hand of protection. If you're familiar with Isaiah 41.10, where God says, don't be afraid, because I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says to the church, I'm holding these seven stars in my right hand. Secondarily, we read, he walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is a bit more straightforward because in Revelation 1, verses 20, we learn that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. This is pretty straightforward in Revelation. So Christ is present among his churches. This imagery is pretty straightforward. Imagine lamp stands up here on stage, and Christ is walking among the lampstands. It's not a hard image for us to understand. However, it is something we tend to forget, is it not? Jesus would say, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. But did you think about that when you walked in this morning? Did you think about God Christ being among us as a church when you walked in this morning. See, in this introduction, Christ is presenting himself primarily in his relationship with his church, but he's saying two things to this church in Ephesus that they need to know before they hear the message he has for them. First, he is saying that Christ is personally present and intimately aware of what's going on in his church. Think about that. Christ is personally present and intimately aware of what is going on in his church, including Faith Bible, including us here this morning. Did we think about that? Do we think about Christ being aware of everything that goes on in his church? He knows every attitude and action. He knows all of the selfless sacrifice that it took to build just what you see up here on stage. He knows every good deed and every action that was done in the name of the church that you thought nobody else noticed. And the flip side, he knows every thoughtless word, every piece of gossip, every slanderous remark, every bad attitude that takes place within his church. Christ knows the good, the bad, and the ugly of his church. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly of Faith Bible Church. And he has to establish this before he tells them what he needs to tell them. And secondarily, we learn from this passage that Christ is sovereignly directing and compassionately holding his church. This is just as important as understanding that Christ knows what's going on is that he's directing what's going on and he is holding his bride, the church. It's easy to lose sight of that. It would have been easy to lose sight of that in Ephesus, where the world around them seemed to be madness, to say that Christ was upholding his church in this pagan city. 
And the church in Ephesus and we need to hear that message as well. That nothing can happen to Christ's church without Christ allowing it. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. And after establishing, after we read who is this to and who is this from, we open the letter and we find out what Jesus has to say to his church and to us this morning. So we move from the letter's address to the letter's aim in verse 2 through 6. And this is where we'll spend most of our time together this morning. He starts off with compliments. As, as Tom referred to last week, compliments are one of the components we find in all of these letters. Compliments. And he gives them six compliments that I want us to note. Look at verse 2 through 3. He says, I know your works. He's going to mention this in multiple churches as we move through these studies. He says, I know your works. This is what your works are. This is because I know what's going on in my churches. Your toil and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those that are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles that are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He says, I know your toil. This is probably a trait that the church at Ephesus picked up from the Apostle Paul. This term toil was Paul, one of Paul's favorite words to use in his epistles. Toil, this idea of mental and physical work to the point of exhaustion. He's saying, I know what you're doing, church at Ephesus. I know how hard you're working. I see everything you're doing in my name. This was a church that was working exceptionally hard. Secondarily, he says, I know your patient endurance. This is an incredible reminder. How hard would it have been as the church in Ephesus to patiently endure that culture? To hold up and endure under the threats that they would have faced externally and internally. Patience is one of the hardest things for us as Christians, isn't it? Because we want it now. He says, I know your patient endurance. I know you're doing what you need to be doing. Thirdly, he says, I know your discernment. And I love this comment. He says, how you cannot bear those that are evil and have tested those that call themselves apostles that are not and found them to be false. I know how discerning you are. And this is a good encouragement because in both Acts 20... And in 1 Timothy, we know that Timothy and Paul both encouraged the church in Ephesus to be discerning, to be wary of the fact that false teachers were going to come up from amongst them, and they needed to test those things against Scripture. They needed to be like the Bereans and open their Bibles and say, is this what God is actually saying in His Word? And the church in Ephesus had heeded the warning. Thirty years later, they were doing exactly what Paul and Timothy had told them to do. They were testing the teachers and finding them to be false. This is a good thing. This is an enviable thing. Thirdly, he says, you are enduring for me. Verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. What a compliment. To be known for enduring challenging situations in the name of Christ. For his glory. This isn't a gritting their teeth and saying, I'll survive it if I have to, but I'm going to do it begrudgingly. You can't say I'm going to do it begrudgingly and it's for Jesus. That doesn't play. Because the attitude matters. He says, you're enduring patiently for my name's sake. You're a church that's known for enduring for the name of Christ. 
It's a huge compliment. And then lastly, he says, you have not grown weary. It would have been so hard not to grow weary in Ephesus, to feel like the efforts they were making weren't resulting in what they hoped they would. But they haven't grown weary. And then I'm going to skip here. I'm going to go back to verse 4 and 5, but down at 6, he mentions one more compliment for the church. We jump down to verse 6. He says, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So this is another compliment for his church. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. What were the works of the Nicolaitans? We're not 100% sure, and we're going to cover this a little bit more in the church in Pergamum in a couple of weeks, but the Nicolaitans were likely advocating one of two things, either a form of syncretism, which would essentially be to say you can have Christianity and you can marry it to the, the worship of Artemis and the worship of the emperor and all of your pagan practices. You can have both of these things together. Or potentially they were advocating for a form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is essentially saying, it came from Greek philosophy, and it says, the body is bad, and the spirit is good. So everything spiritual is good, and everything physical is bad. So what you can do is you can worship and have a spiritual experience on Sunday, and then you can walk out of the doors and do whatever you want with your body. Either way, whether it's syncretism or Gnosticism in this culture, the Nicolaitans were seeking to make Christianity more palatable to an extremely sexually charged pagan culture. We wanted to make it more palatable. We wanted them to be able to have their pagan religion and Christianity at the same time. Or do what Christ wants them to do on Sunday and do whatever they want with their bodies all week. Sound familiar? To make Christianity more palatable. To say that God doesn't care about our sexuality. That God doesn't care what we do all week with our body as long as we worship him on Sunday and make it back into church. Does it sound familiar? We're going to cover this a bit more exhaustively in a couple of weeks, so stick a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. And let me just ask, did he say hate? Did we read that word? Yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Christ is speaking, which I also hate. You get a little squeamish. It's, it's is Christ allowed to hate things? Scripture says Christ hates sin. We have to be uncompromising on that truth. What God says is wrong is wrong. We're not in charge of morality. We don't get to redefine what is right and wrong. If Christ says it's wrong, it's wrong. We should love what Christ loves, absolutely. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. But we need to hate what Christ hates. As the 17th century Puritan preacher Thomas Watson put it, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. These are six incredible compliments. Any church would love to have these six things said about them, would they not? This was a church known for two primary things. Their patient, tireless effort. They worked very hard in the name of Christ. And their doctrinal discernment. They knew what the Bible said. They had it figured out. But. But. Verse 4, with a single word, 
the tone of this letter changes completely. Did you catch it? But I have this against you. See, kids, it's, it's kind of like when you bring home a report card to your parents, right? And you know you did really well in about seven of the eight classes, but there's that one subject. For me, it was English. I hated English. Okay, there's that one subject, and you get your report card, and you bring it home, and you know that there's a C on that, that grade, and you kind of tuck it into the mail, hoping that your parents may accidentally lose it, and at some point, your mom or dad is flipping through it, and they go, I see the report card. Hi, you got your report card home. And they flip through it and they go, A, B, A, A, good job, and C. They're going, I saw that you did great in math. Good job. You got an A there. You've been working really hard. History. I know you don't like history, but you've studied really hard. Good job. You got your B, you know. But English. English, you got the D plus again. Don't worry, kids. Your parents did it with their parents a generation ago. Okay, we've all been there. But Christ in his letter says, you have all these things going for you. And with a single word, the tone of the letter changes. Verse 4. And we move in to the concern for the church at Ephesus. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Other translations render this, you have lost your first love. I really like the ESV translation. It explains this very well, abandoned. You have willingly gone another direction away from the love you had at first. Now, commentators will debate a little bit, what is the love they had at first? We don't really get an explanation here of what sort of love are we talking about. Some think we're talking about the love of God, the passion and enthusiasm we have for our relationship with God. In Christ's own words, he that has been forgiven much loves much. Other commentators will say what they've probably done is they've forgotten their love for the church. They've forgotten their love for each other. Love one another is the most common one another we find in all of the New Testament. And maybe in their doctrinal zeal, they'd become heretic hunters, and nobody wanted to share any thoughts because they were afraid of getting in trouble. Maybe. Or maybe they'd lost their love for the lost. Maybe they'd become so reclusive as a church that they just sink back into their own bunker and try to protect themselves from what the world is trying to push on them. <laughs> and as one person that I love to quote, and forgive me if I've said it before, put it, they sit back in their bunker and they toss out the occasional evangelistic hand grenade and hope that it hits somebody. We can be guilty of that. And things seem so bad out there, we just want to huddle up. So maybe they'd lost their love for the lost. I would submit to you that to select just one of these three is to flatten both the definition of love in Scripture and what Scripture clearly teaches. In 1 John, the Apostle John's letter that you'll find in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to read it this afternoon if you're interested, we learned that love for God is love for God's church. He says, if you say you love God but you hate your brother, the truth is not in you. You cannot have the head of the body without the body. You cannot have the temple without the cornerstone. 
There's a prevailing idea of, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. Okay, his church is hard to love. I don't deny that. But it's a combo deal here. 1 John is extremely clear about that. To love God is to love his church. Secondarily, we know from Scripture, especially the Gospel of John, that to love God is obedience to Christ. Christ would infamously say in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The first and foremost of which has to be the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples. To love God is to love the lost. When Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord with all, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What Christ is saying to his church in Ephesus is, in spite of your doctrinal discernment, in spite of your tireless effort, in spite of all of these things that I would praise you for, your love has grown cold. You have forsaken your first love. And that is a critical issue. I don't come up with this, but Alistair Begg, I was listening to one of his messages a while back, and I love the way he illustrated this point. He said, imagine on your paper in front of you, on your Bible, on the right side of the page, write a zero. And we all know mathematically that a zero is worth nothing, right? But what if you add another zero in front of it, to the left of it? What do you get? Nothing. What if you had another zero? Now you have three zeros on the right side of your page. You still have nothing. And we can add zeros at nauseum, and we will still have nothing. Place a one in front of it. And it totally changes the dynamic. Christ's point here to his church in Ephesus is, all of these things that you are doing are great, but without love, it's nothing. They're good. They're not to be abandoned. We don't reject doctrinal discernment. We don't reject obedience and working hard. But he says, without love, it's not helping you. In case you think Christ's words here to the Ephesian church are the only place in Scripture we find this, turn to the left in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody knows this passage in their Bibles if they've been to a wedding recently because everybody reads this passage at weddings. This is not about marriage. I mean, it's not a bad thing to have in your marriage. Don't misunderstand me. This is about Christ's church. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, delivers this definition of love. And I'm going to read the whole thing. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. Just listen. This is what Christ is saying to his church in Ephesus. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have and deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. A fabulous theme to have in your marriage, but is said to the church. You can speak with all power, 
You can have the faith to move mountains. Without love, it's nothing. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, and that is what Christ is telling his church in Revelation 1 or Revelation 2. He's saying, you have lost your love, and that is a critical loss. Now, don't abandon everything you're doing that's good, but without love, it doesn't mean anything. But thankfully, Christ not only knows what's going on in His church, not only is willing to call them out, but is willing to give them the cure. He gives them the correction in verse 5 to this issue. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and I know it says do the works you did at first, but I'm a preacher, so it has to be an R, return is what I'm going to call it. Remember, repent, and return. Much like the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're familiar, which isn't shocking because that's based on biblical principles, Jesus gives his church three steps to come back to where they need to be. He starts with remember. Remember what? Remember the works you did at first. Remember the passion, the motivation, the love you had as a new believer. Do you remember what it was like to be a new believer, to be newly cleansed of your sins, to be just thankful that God saved you? But for some reason, as we get older, we have a tendency to get cold and callous, don't we? We get a whole lot more doctrinal discernment. We get a whole lot more head knowledge. And for some reason, we lose that passion and that zeal. New believers may make a mess. They may not have all of their T's crossed and their I's dotted on their doctrinal statement, but they've got enthusiasm. They can't wait to express their love for God. They can't wait to share what God is doing in their lives with someone around them. He says, remember what that was like. Remember what that was like. And repent. We struggle with this word repentance, don't we? Because we think, I repented once, that ought to be enough for God, right? He saved my sins once, that ought to be enough. And it's true, once and for all, he saved your sins. However, the Christian life is a constant act of repentance. Just read Martin Luther if you struggle with that idea. Repentance is the bread and the butter of the Christian life and sanctification. He says repent. Repentance is an admission of fault, it's an expression of sorrow, and it's a change of behavior. An admission of fault, God, you are right, I am loveless. An expression of sorrow, and that is wrong. I need you to change me. And a change of behavior, and I'm going to do whatever you call me to do. And then return, do the works you did at first. What were those works? Exactly what we've been saying. Probably similar external action to what they were currently doing. They were faithfully obeying. That action was present in the church at Ephesus, but they weren't motivated by gracious love. The action without the attitude is ineffective. Again, you may speak with the power of angels, but if you don't love, it's nothing. So he says, remember repent and return. And this is the warning. After all these criticisms, or after all these compliments, and this one criticism, 
Christ issues this warning, which feels a little out of place or a little too strict. This is a pretty good church. But he says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But Jesus, isn't that really serious? The church just has this one minor flaw. They're really good at a lot of things. He says, no, this is too critical. To claim the name of Christ and not love Christ or other people is out of bounds. If the church doesn't repent and change, I'm going to come to that church and I'm going to remove their lampstand. I'm going to remove them as a church. I'm going to remove their corporate witness on my behalf. And we could look across this country and see hundreds of church buildings, maybe even church congregations that are still filled on Sunday mornings that we all know Christ has removed his lampstand. There is no proclamation of the gospel in that church. There is no spiritual vitality in that church. And Christ issues this warning to a strong church in Ephesus, and he issues this warning to us. It's interesting that he doesn't just double down on doctrine here. He doesn't just say, double down on what you're good at as a church. Rather than more advanced study, he commands them to remember what they already know. Rather than just head knowledge, he commands them to, re- he commands them to have a humble repentance of the heart. Rather than some new experience they're supposed to be searching for, he tells them to return to what they did before. These are harsh words from a loving bridegroom. And so he ends the letter with an assurance. Verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here, who has an ear to hear. This is similar to what Jesus used across the Gospels when he would say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He would deliver a parable. And the parables would confuse some and they would make sense to others. And he would say, the reality is those that have ears to hear are responding positively. Open ears is a positive response. Closed ears is a negative response. He says, what are you going to do with the words I've shared? And then he says, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, what does it mean to conquer? Throughout the book of Revelation, the one who conquers is unashamedly Jesus Christ. At every turn, he is the one who conquers. And those that conquer are said to conquer with him. They're said to conquer insofar as they participate in his victory. He's not saying if you just work hard enough, you'll conquer. He's saying if you return to what you know, if you return to the love and zeal you have for me, the love and zeal for Christ isn't motivated by just working harder at it. It's motivated by a recognition of what we've been forgiven for. He's saying you're not loving because you think you're fine on your own. When we're forgiven much, we love much. And we have a tendency to forget that. To the one one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
the tree of life which no one has touched since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden in Genesis 3. The tree of life that represented God's life-giving presence among his people in the Garden of Eden. It says the reward for this sort of perseverance is I will grant you to eat of the tree of life. Or as one commentary put it, God's life-giving presence. This is an incredible gift. I don't want to get down in the weeds too long on the perseverance of the saints. I know whenever you bring up the tulip thing, you end up going sideways on everything, right? Okay, and I don't have the time to discuss it and fully explain it here. But what he's saying is essentially an active trust in God that leads to faithfulness in difficult situations of a life lived for Christ. That's what he's talking about. This is to the letter to the church in Ephesus. This is also the letter to us as a church in 21st century Lincoln, Nebraska, and to every other church that would not have its lampstand removed. Last week, Tom said that we're going to be looking through these churches in Revelation through three primary lenses. What do we believe? How do we behave? And how do we endure? I want us to tackle those one at a time and give us some things to think about as we wrap up this morning. What are we to believe? What do we learn about what we should believe in Revelation 2, 1 through 7 from the church at Ephesus? First individually and then corporately. We must love what Christ loves and hate what Christ hates. To be a follower of Christ is to love what Christ loves and hate what he hates. We must have an unwavering, unashamed commitment to the pure doctrine of sin's depravity and the righteousness found only in the gospel. Secondarily, corporately as a church, we must be willing to take an uncompromising stand on the truth of Scripture, regardless of external pressures or internal challenges. And you all know exactly what I mean in 21st century Lincoln, Nebraska. And we don't spend enough time celebrating, I think, as a church. But may I just take a moment and say, this for 28 years has been the stance of Faith Bible Church. By God's grace, we have taken an uncompromising stand on the truth of Scripture. And by God's grace, we will continue to do so for another 30 years. How should we behave? The second portion is also for us. Individually, our zeal for truth must be matched by our radical, sacrificial love for God and others. To say, I'm just about truth and I'm not worried about love, was the issue with Ephesus. J.I. Packard, in classic fashion, puts it this way, the measure and test of love to God is wholehearted and unqualified obedience. The measure and test of love to our neighbors is laying down our lives for them. This sacrificial love involves giving, spending, and impoverishing ourselves up to the limit for their well-being. That's a zeal for truth that's matched by sacrificial love. As I wrestled with this, two questions kept coming to mind, and they bugged me, so I'm assuming they're going to bug you. Is this kind of love, this, this love you had at first present, Number one, 
Are you more worried about people than you are for people? Are you more worried about them than you are for them? Do you spend more time thinking about their failures and their faults and their bad doctrine or any number of things, or do you spend more time worrying about the salvation of their souls? And I don't care if they're your next-door neighbor, if they're a friend and family member, if they're halfway across the country. Do you spend more time thinking about them or worried for them? Do you spend more time talking about them than talking to them? Do we spend more time talking about the people that annoy us or talking to them? Again, these are questions that bothered me, so I'm going to leave it with you to ask how your love is doing. And then corporately, how should we behave? We must be a church and a people defined by how we love each other and the lost around us. I would pray that if we asked the people in Lincoln, what who is Faith Bible Church, that they may say, I don't agree with their doctrine, but I can't match how they love people. I can't match the enthusiasm they have for that God that I don't even believe in. As Tom frequently says, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? Speak with the tongues of angels, but no love. And then lastly, how do we return, or how do we endure What does the path forward look like as a church? And I'm going to do the classic thing that my wife will criticize me for afterward, and appropriately so, because she's a teacher and this is what she does. I'm going to read a quote that's way too long. Okay, I know it's way too long. I'm asking you to be patient, but we're wrapping up here, I promise. Okay, Francis Schaeffer in his book, The Church Before the Watching World, I think hits the path forward on the head. I would encourage you to read it if you haven't read it. Follow along with me here and try to listen to this whole thing. I know it's long, but it is so good. One cannot explain the explosive power of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. They practiced the orthodoxy of doctrine and the orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But the exhibition of love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. The heart of these principles is to show forth the love of God and the holiness of God simultaneously. If we show either of these without the other, we exhibit not the character, but a caricature of God for the world to see. If we stress the love of God without the holiness of God, it turns out to only be compromise. But if we stress the holiness of God without the love of God, we practice something that is hard and lacks beauty. All too often, young people have not been wrong in saying that the church is ugly. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are called upon to show a watching world and our own young people that the church is something beautiful. Orthodoxy, or orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community and love. The church at Ephesus had lost hold of the second. Like the message to the Titanic, Christ's letter to Ephesus is a warning, but it's not just a warning. It's a passionate love letter from a bridegroom to his bride, pleading with her to return to the security, the love, 
and the beauty of their relationship, their love. Church tradition would tell us that the church at Ephesus heard Christ's message and responded. The question is, will we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the fact that you wrote it to the church at Ephesus and they needed to hear it, and for the fact that you write it for us today. Lord, give us the ability to put into practice what your word tells us to do. Help us to rely on the truth of the gospel and the grace that you offer in it to motivate our love for you. Thank you that it's not about what we do, but it's about what Christ did for us. I do pray that Faith Bible Church would continue to be found faithful. Yes, in sound doctrine and commitment to the word. Yes, in our tireless effort for your name's sake but also in our zeal to sacrificially love you and those around us. Father, make us into that church. Save us from the removal of our lampstand someday. For your sake's name, in Jesus' name, amen.